Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Adam Weymouth on his Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year award-winning book, Kings of the Yukon and Alaskan River Journey. Adam Weymouth's work has been published in The Guardian, The Atlantic, The New Internationalist and by the BBC, with his primary focus being the relationship between humans and the natural world. He currently lives on a 100-year-old barge on the River Lee in London, and his first book, Kings of the Yukon, an Alaskan river journey, which we're going to be talking about today, has also very recently won the Sunday Times PFD Young Writer of the Year Award. Adam, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks a lot for having me on, Neil. I want to talk about, I mean, I normally say what inspired the book, but we should say what inspired the journey in the book. Yeah, because the salmon was almost was almost a byproduct. The book really focuses on the salmon, but I mean, it, it's hard to know where these things start. Really, I'd always been drawn to going to Alaska. From I remember watching White Fang in the cinema when I was about eight years old, and and there was probably a fascination with Alaska that came about ever since then. Really, the first time I actually went to Alaska was in 2013, and I was there like, really because I'd always been lured there, but ostensibly as an environmental journalist. And I travelled all over the state in a couple of months. And one of the stories I picked up on, I was invited out onto the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta, which is far, far west Alaska. And I was invited there by a guy called Mike Williams, who was then chief of the Yupik Nation. And he lived in a little village, very remote. But to get there, you had to fly through this town called Bethel. And Mike said that there was a trial on in town at the time. And, and the phrase that he said that stuck in my head was that Gandhi had his salt and we have our salmon. And I sat in on this court case, I wrote a piece about it for The Atlantic, and it was these 23 Yupik fishermen who were on trial because they'd gone out and fished when there was a ban on the catching of king salmon. And the Alaska Department of Fish and Game had put this ban on because there's been this massive crash in salmon numbers in the past few years. And the Yupik were defending themselves, saying that whilst they understood that, it was their, their traditional practice, almost their spiritual heritage to go out and fish. They were defending themselves on the First Amendment of the right to practice their religion. And it felt to me like these two very different ways of, of looking at the world were being forced up against each other. And I wrote this piece for the Atlantic, but it felt to me that there was this much bigger story there to be told. And what restrictions have been put in place? So when I was there in 2013, the story was kind of focused on this one small part of uh, actually a, a river just 
slightly south of the Yukon called the Kuskokwim. I came back to England and followed the story. And in 2014 and in 2015, there was a fishing ban put on the entire length of the Yukon River. So that's 2,000 miles Alaska and going into Canada, which is totally unprecedented. It never happened before. And that was a ban on catching not just commercial fishing, but also subsistence. So all the indigenous people that rely on it for their annual harvests. And... That, that sort of blanket ban has been pulled back slightly now to try and get a balance between the indigenous fishing and protecting the salmon numbers, but it's still really conservative at the moment. There's a number of species of Pacific salmon, particularly, that are obviously um, indigenous to Alaska, but your book is mainly concerned with what's called the king salmon. Tell us about that fish. What's special about it? Yeah, so whilst in, on the Atlantic side, we only have one type of salmon. On the, on the Yukon, there's five, and they all have their kind of different niches. And the kings are the, are the biggest, and they're the ones that travel furthest. And there used to be these absolutely enormous specimens, 80, 90, 100 pound fish were not uncommon. The biggest fish, or the biggest king salmon ever caught on a line was the same weight as the upper limit of a featherweight boxer, which gives you some sort of idea of, of how big they used to be. And the salmon that travel furthest in the world are on the Yukon and the ones that travel the very furthest. To give an idea of their life cycle, they're born way, way, way upriver. The the furthest ones that travel are born in a place called McNeil Lake, which is almost 2,000 miles from the sea. They'll spend their first year up in this lake and then they'll drift down with the current, go out to the Pacific and feed off the coasts of Japan, going up to northern Russia, all over the Pacific. And then in the last few months of their lives, they'll return to the Yukon and swim against the current for several months. At this point, they're not eating or drinking. They're just going on their fat reserves. And they'll make their way back to the exact same pool where they were born to spawn themselves and then almost instantly just rot away and die. And that that image that you have later in the book of like paddling through these sort of bloated salmon corpses, I mean, these... It seems incredible that these fish that are so big, unlike, you know, we all know the the sort of life cycle of like things like mayflies and, you know, certain butterflies that have huge migrations. But the, just the idea of these these huge fish just getting to the end, spawning and, and, and that's it, they're finished. Yeah, it's quite grotesque. And like you say, we, we would paddle through them and kind of almost like these kind of zombie fish. And you would, as, as you put your paddle in the water, you sort of carve a, a furrow through these through these fish, which you can see their skin starting to drop off them. They've lost their ability to fight off disease. So there's kind of molds and bacteria and they just look monstrous. And what I hadn't really appreciated is, is the reason that these fish die is because they're just absolutely knackers. They, 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 they've been swimming against the current for, for three, four, five months with this one aim in progress of just to get back to these the spawning grounds and to to reproduce before they before they die so if we'd have gone back in time gone to visit the yukon let's go let's say i don't know 500 years ago what would the fish population have been like what would we have seen uh historic numbers are quite hard to come by but the historic average seems to be about 300,000 fish sort of since, since estimates have started being done but that's only really in the kind of 70s 80s the 2013, when I was out there writing this um, piece, the, the, the fish were down to 30,000 coming back. So that's a, that's a tenth of their historic numbers. So an absolute collapse. And and it's not just the numbers of the fish, but it's the size of the fish as well. So these big 100 pounds length of a man fish that I was talking about before, now a good sized fish is about 20 pounds. So so it's not just the numbers that have, that have reduced, but it's the, the size, which is almost the more concerning problem. And what sort of things have been affecting the numbers? then 
Well, there's the question, Neil. <laughs> it's, uh, the, and, and there is no there is no smoking gun, really. To go back to what you just said before about looking at the Yukon 500 years ago, what's amazing about the Yukon in some ways is that really lives haven't changed on the Yukon up until about 1896, which is when the first gold rushes came. So the, the rate of change has been incredibly rapid. It's squeezed into really just the last 100 years. And... And Alaska is unique also because it hasn't had a lot of the things that I've done for salmon populations elsewhere. You know, we, we think of Alaska as having these incredibly iconic, you know, we're all familiar with the David Attenborough documentaries of the bears pulling these tranches of, of salmon out of the water. But really, Alaska's iconic for salmon because it's all that's left. You know, we used to, the, the, the salmon that was sold on Billingate Fish Market in London used to come straight out of the Thames. We used to have equivalent salmon runs in Scotland and Spain and New York and up the west coast of America. But these places, it's it's pollution and dams and fish farms and, and overfishing that, that have done for them. Alaska has retained its environment as being fairly pristine up until up until recently and, and, and is still very pristine for the most part. So what's causing these declines is is still to the large part unknown. I came across a lot of hypotheses in the book, but there's there's no definitive answer. Well, what sort of thing then? What what's, what are the the theories? So this decline in size seems to be driving it and the decline in size seems to have come from really just selecting the biggest fish for about 100 years by fishermen you know which makes sense because catching a bigger fish means you have to do a lot less work and and that's especially when there were commercial fishing operations on the Yukon a lot of fishermen were guilty of that and salmon are so genetically specific because they go back to the same spawning grounds it's the same ancestors year on year on year that when you start altering the genetics it's very hard to get them back up again and these vast fish would lay maybe 20,000 eggs and from 20,000 yeah, so, so eggs the big ones are more likely to be female uh, exactly exactly and from 20,000 eggs you'd be lucky if you maybe got five fish back a few years later when they returned because salmon run an absolute gauntlet of you know everything wants to eat them when you have smaller fish you might be lucky if you get one fish back for every fish that spawns so there's a lot less uh, wiggle room in the system it becomes a lot more vulnerable and then the other things that are now starting to hit salmon like climate change like overfishing out in the pacific uh, are being felt much harder than they were before Tell me something about the, I mean, historically, I guess, and, and, you know, up until, as you said, relatively recently, the role that the salmon plays in the lives of the indigenous people along the Yukon. Well, yeah, to me, this is, is, is sort of really what holds the book together. I, I mean, salmon, getting interested in salmon was almost a, a byproduct of this research. What really drew me into the story in the first place was I realised, even in that initial trip to Alaska, that to sit down and talk to people about salmon was to ask people these much deeper questions about their lives. A lot of these villages are incredibly remote, sort of hundreds of miles from the closest road. And the only way in, unless you're getting a bush plane, is, is, is by boat. And so year on year... For thousands of years, salmon have been this reliable annual glut of protein that would flow up the Yukon and all they people really had to do was stick their nets in and, and pull them out. And because it was this great time of abundance, families would come together during the fishing season and it was a time for marriages to be formed and old people to teach the kids how to respect the water and all these different parts of the culture that were sort of passed along at fish camp. And and that's starting to fade away now. That was a part of the culture that's really been retained even into the 21st century. But as the salmon stopped coming, those fish camps are starting to disappear as well. And I realised as I sat down to talk with people about salmon, people would talk to me not just about the declines in the salmon, but what they hoped for for their children or what it means to be indigenous in the 21st century or what does it mean to try and be subsistence in the capitalist world. It, it opened up this much sort of wider scope into their lives. 
I thought one of the, the sort of saddest images in the book was that, you know, this idea that the young people have not had a chance to fish. And so, you know, salmon for them is something that you get out of the freezer. Mm. There's this one part, uh, the first village I come to, where they haven't fished for 20 years now because of the changes they've been observing. And they fly their fish in from a village much further to the south on a different river system that still gets some salmon. And and the young people call it flying fish now. And they associate the sound of the planes turning up with the start of the salmon run rather than uh, how it would have been for, for generations before that. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Adam Weymouth. We're talking about his book Kings of the Yukon, an Alaskan River Journey. And Adam, we've been talking about you know the river and salmon and something about the people, but let's talk about that journey for a bit. Why did you think going by boats would be the way to engage with this with this subject? Well, it definitely wasn't because I had much canoeing experience. Um, I, I wrote the proposal for the book and sold it before my editor asked me how much, uh, how many days I'd spent in a canoe. And uh, I, spent, I spent about an afternoon in the canoe up to this point. And although I did sort of a few days on the Y and a, and a couple of days on the Dart, it's, uh, they're, they're like to- absolute streams compared to the Yukon. The Yukon gets to the point where it's kind of three miles from bank to bank, where it reaches the ocean. It's, it's seven miles from bank to bank. It's an absolutely enormous river. And yeah, it's it's kind of the most sensible way to travel through the country. It, it's it's very much the highway in a way. The, the bush is so dense, and there's there's no roads collecting a lot of these villages. And whether it's by boat in or in summer or by snow machine, snowmobile in in winter when it freezes over, it is how a lot of people get around. And I was really interested in this way of doing a sort of slow overland journey. A few years ago, I walked from England to Istanbul as a kind of exploration of pilgrimage and and walking. And I got really interested in this way that every meeting was a kind of string of coincidences and how people would... I don't know, I felt sort of get where I was coming from because I turned up on foot and they'd tell me about their cousin in the next village and I'd sort of be passed from place to place. And that to me felt quite an interesting way to research rather than the kind of standard journalistic research I was used to where you'd sort of fly into a village and get your quote and leave a couple hours later. Doing it in this very slow way in a form of transport that people got felt to me that people really opened up much more when when we'd turn up and spend a few days camping on the beach and people would come down to talk to us and 
and it, it seemed to break down a lot of barriers I think yeah I think that definitely comes out the way that people relate to you because of the way that you've arrived I guess you know the way that you turn up in there in the next town along the way or the next settlement along the way really opens up the way that the people relate to you I think yeah I mean canoeing is still sort of you know it, it's how the indigenous people traveled a couple hundred years ago they, they they find it quite quaint that people are still in canoes now it's kind of like seeing someone come along and take a horse and cart down a motorway but you know they're all in their little aluminium boats now without board motors and all the rest of it but there was still yeah kind of connection there and it's at least that we know the river we've been out on the same river as them they'd come down to for us to sort of get the gossip and you know what's going on in Nalato up the river have you seen so and so so yeah there was a bit of give and take that they were sort of interested in we brought with us as well so what's the i mean the journey is is broken up into a couple of parts um, logistically but tell me about you know the sort of equipment that you take the length of the journey well yeah what's the lo- logistics of um of traversing the ent- entire yukon yeah so the main trip was about was about four months uh in a canoe and i mean in some ways it is quite a luxurious way to travel you know that that trip that i talked about doing from england to istanbul with just a rucksack you're really kind of limited in what you can take and in that sense canoes are really luxurious you know we had we had chairs we had a spice rack we <laughs> made bread in the evenings and you can really pack quite a lot in there which which we had to we'd have about sort of six weeks worth of food with us at a time because there's just very few places to stock up along the way each village does have a little store but it's pretty pretty stocked because everyone that lives in these villages is relying on on subsistence foods and whether that's salmon or moose or berries or whatever it might be and people would supplement our diets a lot of people would would give us fish and 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 meat and and bits and pieces to share there's a real kind of culture of hospitality and, and and sharing food and that's what people have a lot of and so it's what they like to give and it was a mix really there'd be days so so part of the journey I was by myself, part of it I was with, at the beginning with an old Scottish gentleman and, and then the second half of the trip with my partner, Uli. Sometimes we'd be in villages and spend a few days in villages and then there might be a week of paddling between villages and we'd see no one at all. So that was camping up on beaches in the evenings, setting a tent, making a fire, cooking the dinner, reversing the whole process in the morning and loading up the canoe and carrying on again. There's a, a scene I particularly wanted to talk about where you come across an island with a um, an old rotting paddle steamer. Mm. Yeah, well, one of the things that really strikes you, especially being on the Canadian side of the Yukon, which was so renowned for the the Klondike Gold Rush, uh, which was an end of the 19th, start of the 20th century, is that there's a real sense of of time going in reverse you know we're so used to this idea of of progress and always more stuff and more things and more human influence and less less wild space and all the rest of it but here that really flips it on its head a hundred years ago you could get a paddle steamer in whitehorse and catch it down river to to dawson city there was public transport on the river because hundreds of thousands of people came for the gold rush now you might find as you say an abandoned paddle steamer just rotting because it didn't become viable to run it anymore there's old telegraph wires that run along the river for parts you 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 might stop and camp on the beach one night and find some abandoned log cabin with old tin cans from 100 years ago so there's a real sense that that sort of human influence on that part of the yukon at least has, has has really peaked and is starting to go in reverse now but the indigenous cultures further further down, it, it's it's very different. But historically, in the kind of sense of the gold rush, yeah, it really feels like that sort of moment on the Yukon has peaked. Before you set out, did you have any reservations about what you might encounter on the way? And I'm thinking here particularly of uh, bears. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's very hard to be on the Yukon in Alaska, in Canada, without without having bears as the sort of background fear in your mind all the time. And and you always kind of know that you'd be very unlucky. But then, I mean, then there was that awful story last week about the uh, about the mother and baby being being killed by a grizzly in uh, in the Yukon Territory just last week. So so it does happen. And and there's, and there's very little you can really do about it. You know, we, we had um, they advised people to carry these sort of industrial sized cans of pepper spray. Uh, so we had that, and we had an air horn to try and scare them off. But it's yeah, it's, it's definitely always at the back of your mind and beyond trying to second guess them and find a good place to camp where you hope they won't be and being careful with your food scraps and you get in very good routines of washing up straight after dinner and all that kind of thing but in the end the the real danger of the trip was was not the bears but was was the river itself it's such a big river and it's such a cold river and when the wind picks up when you've got sort of two miles of river from bank to bank a little bit of wind can make really big waves which a canoe just isn't designed for and so yeah, it, it was it was the weather and, and the water that was was the most sort of complicated part of the journey. I wanted to talk about some of the the people, some of the encounters with people that you have along the way. And I wondered, is there anyone at all along the Yukon that doesn't have their own reality TV series? <laughs> yeah, that was one of the bits that really astonished me. I, I started to wonder if maybe Alaska has the highest concentration of TV celebrities in the world for a population of Nottingham. Alaska has the same population as Nottingham. I stayed with four different people along the length of the journey that have that, that have their own reality TV show, and it seems to be. And in some ways, you can trace it to the decline of the salmon. A lot of these people that, in some ways, however remote you live in the bush, you need to make a bit of money. You need to buy coffee and cigarettes and repair your outboard motor and and whatever it might be. A lot of people used to make their money from from catching salmon, but now that's not allowed. One of the ways that people have found to, to scrape a living is to be on National Geographic or the Discovery Channel. But it, it seemed a very sort of strange trade-off. Uh, you have a lot of quite misanthropic people living in log cabins in the middle of nowhere. And then for about three months of the year, a camera crew would turn up and dog their every move. I wanted to talk particularly about... Um... Andy and Kate, who you, where you spent time with, with Andy, Kate was no longer there, and particularly this appalling flood that they that they endured. Yeah, so Andy's on a program called Life Below Zero, um, which looks at people, various different people living very remote lives in in Alaska. And yes, like you say, Andy and and Kate, who was his partner at the time, who had uh, had left him by the time that I met him had lost their lost everything absolutely everything from a flood that happened at breakup so breakup is the time the the yukon will be frozen solid between maybe november to april it depends and with climate change that that date is getting earlier every year and with climate change the breakups are getting more and more violent the ice can go out all at once and form a sort of dam which the water backs up behind and the water can rise meters within minutes and andy and kate and their 24 sled dogs all had to be airlifted to safety uh andy then returned and, and has built has built places built all his cabins again in almost exactly the same place because that is where he feels that he belongs but the, and this, this flood was a was a once in a lifetime event but it feels that these once in a lifetime events happen much quicker than they used to what are the signs of catastrophic climate change did you see as you were as you were traveling it's it's such small things. I mean, not small things. The people it involves with the bit. It's not. 
you know, vast wildfires and carbon glasses and all the rest of it. It's the real effects on individual people's lives. So one story that I'd hear quite frequently now is hunters disappearing through the ice in winter. And, and, and these are people that have lived on the land for generations and generations, and they've passed down from, from father to son, mother to daughter, how to, how to hunt, how to understand the land. And now the ice is not predictable. So people will be out using the river as, as the kind of highway in, in winter. And I heard several stories of people that would just vanish through holes in the ice that they weren't expecting to be there. It's erosion happening as the permafrost thaws beneath houses and erodes the foundations. It's changing weather patterns. It means that animal migrations are less predictable. So it's getting harder to find food for people. It's 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 a lot of these effects that we that we don't even really think about but when you see somewhere like Alaska where it's so undeniable and and Alaskans you know and there is a strong republican movement in Alaska and people might still debate the reasons for climate change in Alaska but no one in Alaska will tell you it's not happening because it is so apparent that it is I want to talk about what's the plan for the future in terms of rebuilding the numbers of salmon well, the conservative fishing measures that have been put in in the last few years have had an effect on numbers and numbers are starting to go up. It hasn't had any effect on the size and that's that's the sort of long-term goal. But I had quotes of estimate from anything from 50 to 100 years to start getting the size back up. I mean, if, if you stop people fishing salmon, it stands to reason you're going to get more salmon back the next year. But unless you can start getting the numbers back up, uh, which would require very long-term either straight-up bans or conservative fishing, and, and that's what's really hard to maintain. When people start seeing the numbers go back up, they want to get back to fishing. And to me, the problem I was really left with was, well, how do you try and get the fish numbers back up, but still try and preserve these indigenous cultures? And that's not saying that indigenous cultures are meant to be stuck in some sort of past where we would like to keep them. You know, these, these people are very much 21st century Americans as much as they're Athabascans or Yupik. But what they want is to be able to determine what their futures look like on their own terms. And part of that is preserving their traditional heritage and it's preserving their food sources and it's preserving these ways of passing their culture onto their kids and how you preserve or in, in, ensure the continuation of, of the cultures and the King Salmon seems, seems that really sort of difficult tightrope to walk. And indeed, I mean, surely part of the, you know, the tactic we need to adopt for, you know, for dealing with climate change in the future is the reincorporation of people into the ecosystem in that sort of way, you know, ways in which in which people and, and, and nature can coexist in, in more harmonious ways, I guess. Exactly. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think my sort of initial draw to Alaska of this kind of vast wilderness where I'd go and discover myself and all the rest of it is, is a very sort of naive view that the sort of fetish if you want of, of wilderness is it really discounts the idea that you know for a long time people have made their lives on this land as well and and it's totally linked the 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 people have influenced the culture of the salmon as much as the salmon has influenced the culture of the people and and that doesn't feel like some sort of romantic way of looking at it in alaska that feels absolutely real and as you start to change one it's very apparent that that everything else starts to change as well that the people and the land and the fish are, are intimately connected just the same as i would say we are in london but because our food comes from the supermarket and our water comes from the tap and the, the, those connections are much more obscure and we don't see that when we start changing something that everything else starts to shift as well but in alaska it's really kind of all that stripped back to its bare bones and you can you can see how interconnected it all is yeah and just one more thing from me adam before we finish what does it mean to you that you've won the sunday times pfd young writer of the year award this year oh it's really 
thrilling. I was absolutely stunned, to be honest. Um, yeah, it means a huge amount to me. It means a huge amount going forward and, and what I'm going to write next. And and it's really great to have this book recognised as well. It has felt like quite a personal project in, in a way. I understand that face value fish aren't perhaps the most charismatic of creatures. And this is about a part of the world that not many people have experience of. But as we've been talking about, I really feel that this story has a resonance far beyond the Yukon and far beyond the salmon. It's about it's about people and place and, and how interconnected the two are. And that the judges have recognised that feels, feels really validating. So I've been talking to Adam Weymouth. We've been talking about Kings of the Yukon and Alaskan River Journey, which is out in the UK on particular books. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks very much, Neil. It's been great. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.